welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, and joining me as usual is Jeremy Goldhorn, the man behind DanWade.com. Great to see you, Jeremy. Good evening, Kaiser. Welcome back. Thanks, and thanks for that excellent conversation last week with David Spimber. I really enjoyed that. Me too. It was、yeah. a lot of fun. Great guy. Also with us here today is Will Moss, spin doctor extraordinaire, who blogs at ImageThief.com and as part of the group blog Rectified.Name. How you been, Will? I've been good, Kaiser. Good to see you.、Uh, and we are pleased to welcome back longtime China veteran David Wolf, president of Wolf Group Asia, a Beijing-based strategy and communications consultancy. Great to have you back, David. Good to be here, Kaiser. Thanks very much. So I'd like to remind listeners that they can join in conversation about our podcast topics on our Facebook page. Facebook.com/slash/CynicalPodcast or on the pop-up Chinese Cynical Podcast page for each episode, and I am delighted to tell our listeners about an exciting upcoming show that we'll be recording on October 18th and should have online the following day, featuring UC Irvine historian Jeffrey Wasserstrom, who's been on our show once before, and very special guest author Pankaj Mishra. Who famously dueled Niall Ferguson in the pages of the London Review of Books, and who will be talking about his own new book, *From the Ruins of Empire: The Revolt Against the West and the Remaking of Asia*. If you're able to get a hold of a copy ahead of that podcast and read it in the next six weeks, I'm sure you'll get even more out of that show than you already will. But we're really looking forward to that one. So, today we're talking about Huawei, the Chinese telecommunications networking equipment manufacturer. Huawei ranks among China's most successful and.、Uh, One of China's few truly international companies,、uh, but it's also one of its more controversial companies, particularly when viewed from the capital of capitals of certain Western countries. And then, of course, it's come under particularly sharp attack in Washington, where resistance to Huawei has been、uh, mostly over security concerns, as as everywhere. So we're going to dive into that.、Um, I think both Will and David are, are are well qualified to speak on this. But first. Uh, there was a piece in Project Syndicate that、uh, that I think I, saw, I first saw it from your Facebook page, David, right? And、uh, by the the very well known critic of the Chinese government, Min Xinpei, he、uh, basically took to task the business community in China, who are constantly singing the praises of, of the Chinese leadership. The technocrats who run the show here are, in their minds, very sharp, very forward looking,、um, very worldly,、um, and essentially benign. And he he points out how this stands in such stark contrast to the picture that's painted by ordinary Chinese of the leadership, where they are every sort sort of you know venal and and corrupt and debauched and and dissolute. So you you took issue with this, David? I, I did, and my my primary concern was that、um, for all of of Pei's substantial academic background. He clearly doesn't get out very much among the business community in Beijing. One of the things that's very clear to anyone who spent much time here or spent much time talking to business people here in China, you realize you can't throw them all into the same bucket. There are、uh, business people who who have、uh, a bad case of what I would call the Tom Friedman syndrome, who show up here, look around, look at the the, the high speed trains, and by God, they run on time. Let's have a one party state. Yeah, let's and but let's have a one party state, and they 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 go home absolutely enamored with the idea, and primarily because it's not like the Russia that was painted to them when when they were growing up.、Um, and then there are those of us that、uh, hmm, you know participate in the Seneca podcast,、um, who've been around here for a while, run around the block, and who understand that there are very clear distinctions, that there are good. Government employees, there are bad government employees, and that it's the nuance here that really determines whether you succeed or fail. And the fact that 
that pay completely missed that. So it's not that he's throwing the businessmen all in one bucket. It's that he's throwing officialdom all, all in one uh, bucket. I'd say he's probably doing both at the same time. Where you know What I reacted to viscerally about this and, and demanded my immediate attention was – don't throw me in the bucket with the Tom Friedman types and, and certainly don't throw into the bucket all of my friends who've been here for five years or more. Was that the argument also made on the China hearsay blog by Stan Abrams? That you know, I didn't... To, to some degree, yes, some it was. I, I think he was in a similar direction. I have to say, it seems to me a little bit dated. I, I think that in the late 90s and the early years of the 21st century, I feel as though I met many more businessmen who... Uh, would say that kind of thing, e- even people who'd been in, in China for several years. I don't feel that that's the case anymore. Well, I think there's a few things going on. The first thing is, I think if you talk to any substantial number of business people who have been here for a while or who run the China branches of their companies, you'll find that many of them, I think, have a pretty clear-eyed approach to how the government operates here and the challenges they face. And the industry associations here, AmCham, UCTO, spend a great deal of their time acting as fronts for the grievances and complaints of foreign businesses operating in China. That's a big part of what they do. So there's clearly some give and take in in how the government is perceived here. But that's balanced by the fact that the senior leaders of foreign companies operating in China, particularly when they're speaking publicly, often have to cheerlead to some degree or they get in trouble. And we have all seen the results of what happens when companies start speaking their minds uh, about the government in China. So GE, for example. So so there's some conflicts there. Uh, And then the third thing is that he does that that I notice is he's in his language he kind of conflates business leaders and China hands and as David has pointed out there's a lot of different communities of foreigners here who see things in different ways and react in different ways to how the government works. Well, I'm neither a real China hand nor a business Who leader. Who knows what you are? Oh, come on. But but, but uh, in, in in I mean I it, it's clear to me that the kind of leaders with whom uh, businessmen, foreign businessmen, people who run MNCs here are going to have truck are going to be people like you know the China Securities Regulatory Commission. They're going to be people like Mofcom. They're going to be the, the CBRC. They're going to be and, – and, and these – Specific are, industry regulators. Right. It's, it's specific industry regulators. And these often are staffed by people who've gone to LSE, who have you know experience working uh, abroad, if not just in Hong Kong, actually in London or in New York or, or in – uh, in in uh, other major financial capitals, and and these are smart people. These are people who you know who gone to the Kennedy School. These are educated. People who, or there being... are plenty of competent technocrats in China. That's right. There are probably a fair number of incompetent technocrats as well. But the same could be said of us. I think there's also one more thing. My last comment on this uh, debate is that I don't think that you can ever understand China unless you've been truly and thoroughly shafted. And if you have done business in China, you will at least once and probably many times have been shafted. Of course. Um, and gut, sometimes yeah. I don't think academics like pay perhaps, you know, as you say, maybe he doesn't get out enough. And they don't understand the importance of blowing a little friendly smoke up the ass of the, the local you know, petty tyrant. <laughs> we <laughs> well, NPR spend some time was, on that. You know, I was just going to say, I mean, one of the things that, that, that unfortunately Will and I are called upon to do frequently is, is to, to, to sort of – Spin those messages out there because you know it's 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 pro forma. It must be done. You know you you're you're in business with the government to a certain extent, so your your public pronunciations have to be one thing. That's right. But you have to dive beyond that to really understand what what the sentiment is here. 
And this works in all directions, and it will feed into our Huawei conversation later because they're going to have to play the same game in the U.S. Right, exactly, and they are. Let's let's jump right into that then. Nice segue, been, Will. Very nicely done. Thank very you. nicely done. Um, so Huawei, let's talk about Huawei. I mean, there were uh, probably few companies in China that have had the kind of international success. That they they're in more than 140 company, uh, countries around the world. Uh, the company itself employs over 140,000 people. I've had the pleasure of actually visiting their headquarters in, in Shenzhen, which is, is, is very, very impressive. Um, it's won key network projects in pretty much every continent on, on Earth. Uh, and the only country w- w- that they really laments not having penetrated in any meaningful ways, of course, the United States. Um, I, I actually, not long ago, uh, had lunch with the CEO of a regional Huawei operation. Uh, I'm not at liberty to say what country that was in, but um, he he was, uh, I mean, he, he, he had lots to say on this subject, which, of course, is part of the reason why I wanted to, to take this on. Now, it's been also, of course, in the news a lot of late. Uh, earlier this month, I think the August 4th print edition, The Economist ran, uh, a very long article about Huawei and its attendant controversies, uh, and as, as well as one of the leader pieces, one of the opinion pieces, which we'll, we'll get to. Uh, CNET sent a couple of reporters, Jay Green and Roger Cheng, to Shenzhen to visit Huawei, and they published a long and, and quite in, in, in-depth look at the company. Um, they uh, It was called Inside Huawei, the Chinese tech giant that's rattling nerves in D.C. And, David, you have written a book. I think you call it a monograph. Uh, uh, Making is, the Connection, the right. Peaceful Rise of China's Telecommunications Giants. Right, right, right. I, it, it probably it sh- we should we should get this out of the way first. Um, you, you actually did write that with a little bit of funding from Huawei. Huawei. Huawei came to me and they said, look, we like some of the things that you're saying about us. And one of the, what I'd been saying about them was this is, a, this is not such a bad company. They just suck at communications. And so they came to us and said, we would like you to tell the backstory of how this industry developed. We don't want you to talk about us now. We don't want you to, to do anything like this. If you would be amenable to writing something like that. And I wanted to, but you know, couldn't take time away from my day job. And they did, they did provide a sponsorship. Now that came from me with a condition, which was they don't get to look at the manuscript before it gets published. Okay, and good. So they had no editorial involvement. There in was it. no editorial control at all, which which by itself really impressed me, I have to say. You know, it's given given the control freakishness of, of most Chinese companies. Right. But yeah. then, again, you were limited to just sort of writing about the rise. And so I guess that's a good place that we, we might start. Tell us about Huawei's origins, its peaceful rise, about uh, its early days, uh, the mysterious founder, Ren Zhengfei. <laughs> Well, I mean, Ren Zhenfei, you know, if, if anything, um, was, you know, he was an army officer. His, his background was, was engineering, but it was engineering and textiles, of all things. And he found himself um, rift, uh, downsized, basically, when the, the PLA began shutting down some of its commercial activities in the early 1980s. And he bounced around for a few years doing all kinds of things, selling TVs, um, selling oil field equipment. And he found himself... Um, fascinated by and focused on uh, telecommunications equipment. And the company basically started, as so many technology companies here do, including Lenovo, as an agent for foreign companies that wanted to sell communications gear into China. It's PBXs or something like PBXs, that. PBXs, exactly. Yeah. And then they said, oh, okay, well, we can, we can figure out how to make those ourselves. And that's how they started. They started making PBXs, these little things that you see sec- used to see in the old days. Um, on secretary's desks. On secretary's desks, exactly. And so that was what they made. And they gradually grew from there over time. Um, 
despite the fact that, that the, the Chinese government was choosing its own champions, Beijing-based companies for the most part, who they wanted to get into the, the, uh, the big switch business, which was the big business at the time before everything went, went so, uh, Yeah, so I guess this is probably one of the first persistent myths that we see. Uh, uh, this is one of the things that I would, I would point any, anyone to, the fact that uh, well into the 2000s, I, when I was, I was reporting about this company, uh, the fact is that in all the major telecommunications markets in, in the important coastal provinces, you couldn't find Huawei equipment, except at, at a very low level. None of the the, the, the the edge routers, none of the none of the the uh, the core equipment at all in any network was Huawei. It was going to be Juniper. It was going to be Cisco. It was is going to be you know. It was going to be Alcatel. It was Alcatel going to be all these guys. Ericsson, it was, it was going course. to be all the big yeah, all the big international companies. And the reason was very simple. In 1986. After China decided, oh, gee, we can't manufacture this stuff to give ourselves a, a modern communications network, um, the government turned to the Ministry of, of Post and Telecommunications at the time and said, go out and buy whatever you need. Because the MPT very smartly had made a case to the government saying, this isn't an industry, this is infrastructure for the future. Right. And they made that case. And so the government said, we believe it, go out and buy it, and forget what it costs, and forget where you're going to buy it. And so... All these coastal provinces said, what do we need to talk to this little local company for with absolutely no credibility when we can go and we can buy from Alcatel, we can go and buy from Lucent, we can go and buy from Ericsson. Oh, and we get free trips to really cool places all at the same time. <laughs> plus, plus, I mean, this is the old nobody ever got fired for buying an IBM thing. Right. You don't want to take a risk if you're, if you're a public official on a local company if you don't have to because what if their stuff breaks? Then they'll come to you and say, hey, we said get whatever it takes – why didn't you buy Alcatel? Right, right, right. right. So um, Huawei basically found itself closed out of the market. So this is, in fact, what what compelled them to to. I mean, this is a company with a founder who speaks no language besides Chinese. Uh, nevertheless, finding itself having to look to markets outside of China. It, it had it had very little choice. They they eventually penetrated some of the markets way out in the sticks, and I mean, you know, extraordinarily aggressive sales tactics promising the world and then then coming back to their engineers and saying, okay, guys, you've got to deliver. The world. Right. Yeah, exactly. And then they they did what they could there, but they ventured overseas very early because they recognized that was the future. David, can I just uh, clarify, what time period are we talking about? The we're, 90s, right? We're, we're talking about the 90s, and, and specifically, I mean, the early 90s for them was where they, they realized that they weren't going to penetrate very deeply um, into the country. Now, a couple things happened in the mid-1990s that began to change everything for Huawei. The first thing that happened was we went through the mobile explosion here. And so all of a sudden, all the carriers, um, at the time there was, there was just two. There was Unicom. Uh, there were three, actually. There was Unicom. There was, there was uh, China Telecom. And there was also this little thing called Great Wall, mm -hmm. uh, which was uh, an, an attempt by the Army to get into the, into the, uh, the carrier business. Um, they all, all of a sudden, everybody wanted a great mobile network. That happened. Then the second thing that happened was the internet explosion around the world. So all of a sudden, just as China's, China needed to build its own internet from nothing, China needed to build its own mobile networks from nothing, all of a sudden all these manufacturers who had been hot to sell in China were getting all kinds of demand back from home. And they couldn't produce quickly enough to satisfy China. Who were they going to take care of first? They were going to take care of AT&T. They were going to take care of all their longstanding customers first. Sure. And China would get whatever was left over. That's where things really started to change, and that's where the door began to open. Very interesting. Let's talk a little bit about the company culture. 
I mean, this is something that gets talked all about an awful lot, and uh, it's one of the things that many visiting journalists, and I, I suppose I once numbered among them, found somewhat off-putting. I mean, it, the I guess it, it's not too much of a stretch to, to describe it as kind of cultish or Maoist. Having having been a part of a, of a, of a relatively cultish company before and having seen a cultish company like, oh, gee, I don't know, Apple uh, in operation, <laughs> I mean, you, do, you, you walk in and you feel like... Um, these are all people who've sort of, you know, bought into the whole idea of Huawei and into its legend and all of that. Um, and it, it is off-putting initially, but you spend enough time there and you talk to enough people and you recognize that these are simply passionate people. They're not freaks. They're not brainwashed. They're not moonies. Um, they're people who really believe that they've seen the insides of the company and this is going to be a truly great organization and they have a part to play in that. That's an exciting feeling for anybody, and that will turn almost anybody into into a, you know a wide eyed kind of kind of glassy eyed follower. But David, isn't the problem not that uh, it's cultish? I mean, Americans love cultish companies. Look at Apple. Yeah. The problem I is think that most we don't know like who to be cultish with have their employees be cultish but, if they could achieve it. So the problem is, in fact, that people are suspicious of who owns it, really. Who owns right. it and who controls it. I mean, can we, do you want to talk about that in a little bit? Because that, to me, is the heart of the, the suspicion. And I, th I think the, there's, there's two things that we need to do, talk about. It's the ownership and the control. The ownership through a kind of a stilted system that, that even I have, have really yet to penetrate. The ownership of the company is essentially vested in, in its Chinese employees. Officially. And officially, it's vested in the Chinese employees. The control of all that stock, however, to a great extent remains in the hands of, of the, the executive board. So it's something that's quite different from a corporate governance standpoint and from a stock ownership standpoint than what we would see overseas. The reason for that, that at least this is what Huawei says, is because the nature of the stock grant program or the stock options program that it would like to pursue is simply untenable in China's legal system at this time. And that's, that's actually quite a valid point. Having, as a businessman, run into that very same issue with stock grants uh, in, in other companies in China, it, it is a problem. It is a challenge for them. So, so does the government own any part of it? To my understanding, 98 point something percent is, is employee-owned. That's um, what they say, right? Yeah. But, um, I mean, that doesn't quite answer the question. Is there government ownership? Is there government ownership? And do they have a party secretary on the board? The other thing is, would ownership make a difference from the point of view of a large Chinese company in terms of the level of influence the Chinese government would, had over, would have over it regardless? This, this is, this, I mean, I've worked with state-owned enterprises before in their ownership. This is not a state-owned enterprise. Um, and one of the reasons that Ren moved to Shenzhen was because it was the one place in China's wild, wild west where he could get away with starting up a company like this and running it without government control interference. He has stayed absolutely clear of the government and for that, and for the primary reason that he felt no obligation to do so, and the government was never really interested in, in, in controlling it. Do you, do you feel that it's fair, Will, uh, that every article that talks <laughs> about him r feels that it's necessary to bring up his is sh relatively short and relatively uh, low-ranking stint in the People's Liberation Army. I don't think it's. I don't think it's fair necessarily. I do think it's understandable and to a degree it's self-inflicted. Uh, Ren Zhengpei doesn't do interviews, at least with the foreign press. Uh, and because they, the first thing they want to ask but, him is, tell us about your days. But with that's exactly what they should do. That uh, is exactly what he should do. He should sit down with the foreign press and say, let me tell you about my days in the Chinese military. 
They've got to be more transparent. He's got to be more accessible. A big part of their problem, especially with regards to the United States, is that there's a large number of politicians who think that he's Dr. Evil and lives in a volcano. Right. And he's inaccessible. My, they keep. I got they, that quote. That they, was, uh, they, uh, they keep him inaccessible. They keep him in the volcano. They keep him in the volcano, which exacerbates the problem. So this just creates a vacuum in which people can create the image they want. And if you're an American politician and you're in the middle of the great cyber war meme, it's politically expeditious to create the idea that he's some kind of government agent and he's a tool of government influence over the company. The Fortune 500 is full. American companies, the Fortune 500, many of them are run by military academy graduates and former uh, officers. Officers, And we're not out there, you know, wondering about whether Procter & Gamble's products are, you know, are or somehow instruments of American policy. But, well, we know that we know they are. <laughs> but, but, of course, Huawei faces a different issue. The cyber spying thing and the fact that they're a telecoms equipment company makes that link, that connection, so, e- so easy to draw uh, that they're going to be victimized by this unless they can be more transparent. Right. Now, so now uh, Huawei, of course, uh, started off internationally in the developing world. Uh, they had a lot of other early contracts, other success in uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, in the Middle East, in North Africa, uh, in Latin America. But one one of the big points at which they stumbled, one of the first run-ins they really had with the United States was in Iraq after the Gulf War, after the first Gulf War, when they... Uh, can you give us the details of that, David? I mean, this, was, this is one of the things that gets brought up frequently. One of the, one of the things that you have to be aware of is, is that both Huawei and ZTE were, were, were involved in this problem. And, and it was... You know that that there was a need to rebuild um, Iraq's infrastructure, but it, it it wasn't just Iraq. ZTE, for example, actually went into Iran, and and was was uh, was involved in selling Iran an advanced digital, um, ostensibly civilian telecommunications network. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the great concern was was the dealings in Iran uh, more than more than Iraq. Okay, I mean I know that that um, Huawei has uh, had until recently, fairly substantial business interests there. The CEO that I talked to told me that they gave up $700 million in contracts in Iran in an effort to get in good graces with the United States, that they've abandoned a, a very lucrative uh, you know, bird in the hand for, for the one in the bush. They have, and ZTE has as well. I think they, they've both realized that you know, if you're going to balance doing business um, uh, with the revolutionary Islamic government in, in Tehran, you're going to jeopardize business in, in very many other countries in the world, and not just the United States and not just Western Europe. So it was, it, it was just, look, uh, $700 million versus, you know, um, 20-odd billion dollars potential in, in uh, business elsewhere, real potential business elsewhere, and I think they just decided it wasn't worth it. And, and the other thing, the other big rub against them always is the um, alleged, were they even just alleged, the IPR violations of Cisco. I mean, my understanding of people who know this is there simply was code lifted uh, and, and inserted in, in Huawei equipment directly from Cisco. There's, there's really no ambiguity as to whether there was an IPR violation. What I had heard, and again, this is hearsay, was that to the, it was to the point where the instruction manuals that came with the devices in question, which I believe were, were routers, um, even went so far as to copy the errors, the typographical errors from, from the original ones. So there were that was settled. It was settled. Um, it was settled amicably between, or relatively amicably between the <laughs> two. As and, but I got to tell you, it was a lesson. It was a real lesson for Huawei, and they have gotten religion as a result when mm-hmm. it comes to IPR. Mm-hmm. 
And how long are you going to punish the company for that, even if you hold that over them? Uh, the technology industry in particular, as we have seen very recently, is full of companies suing each other for IPR violations. Uh, usually business moves ahead one way or another, as long as there aren't political agendas hanging over it at the same time. That's and quite frankly, you couldn't start a business in China uh, you know, in the 1990s, really right up until recently, and possibly even now without committing many crimes. <laughs> well, and, so. and, and let's keep this all in historical perspective. I mean, you know, not justifying the, the, the practice, but Milton Hershey ripped off um, IPR of, of several Swiss firms in order to make milk chocolate. He didn't want to pay them the licensing, didn't want to buy all the stuff. And so he said, okay, I'm going to go replicate what they do, create my own Shanghai uh, milk chocolate process. And he built his company on that basis. And as a result, you Americans still have Shanghai chocolate. It's you know, sucks, inedible, that stuff. It's inedible. <laughs> I love that is true, <laughs> man. Hey, it's, it's good in hey, s'mores. Peanut, peanut butter cups, man. Peanut butter cups. So, um, you know why? Why all the relative? I mean, why why the, the opacity and the secrecy? I mean, I know that it, that earlier in, in the two thousands, Goldman and another couple of investment banks tried to take them out, tried to take them public, and they, they ran into all sorts of, of problems. Uh, and some of that had to do with the the complexities of the ownership structure. Some things apparently they didn't want to have come out into the light. What what's what's going on? Why all the, the secrecy with this company still? I, I think you know for all the the dealings that I've had with them, um, I, I don't know that there are any particular dark secrets. I think that if you look at the flood of Chinese firms that is starting to come back in this direction, part of what is and, and delist in the United States, part of what's driving them to do that is that they are uncomfortable with being as open as the West demands because this is a group of companies and group of executives, and this is really China's first generation of business executives, who grew up in a culture where disclosure is just not a part of what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. And disclosure in Western companies is something that we have learned to do since the 1920s and the 1930s. It's, it's, it's been a long process. This is hard. One of the things that, that I discovered in working with Huawei is that there is a group of executives within the company who are really trying to get everybody comfortable with being open and transparent. But it's tough. It is, a, it is an 80-year learning process that they're trying to get through in 24 months. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's a deeply ingrained cultural issue, and it's present in many big Chinese companies, and not many just big Huawei. Japanese companies. For crying out loud, this sure. was the core of, of, of Toyota's problems a few years ago. So let's let's talk about the demands for disclosure. I think um, there's there's a very glaring example, and this is the one that that the authors of the uh, C, CNET piece lead with. They they talk about uh, a, a a woman. Uh, I, I can't remember her name right now. It doesn't. It, pop to mind, but uh, who, who is, is basically given the task of answering this 11-page long letter uh, that the U.S. Office of Representatives Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence sent them in June of this year. Uh, Chen Fang was her name. Right, right, right. That's, yeah, Madam Chen. The vice president. Will you've 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 had a look at at the list of demands? <laughs> would you would you be so good as to read uh, some of what the U.S. Congress wants to know about the relationship? Sure. Well, first of all, this the letter goes on for pages and pages and pages. Uh, you know, it's like your tax return, and 
it when I I've just skimmed it. Confession, I've 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 only skimmed it. I haven't read it in great detail because it's almost impossible. But it looks like a document that's sort of made to be as difficult to respond to as possible. So right at the beginning, item one A, please describe Huawei's interactions and relationships with the following Chinese entities over the last five years, including the names and titles of government officials with whom Huawei employees most frequently interacted at each the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology, the Ministry of Commerce, the Ministry of Finance, the Ministry of National Defense, the Ministry of State Security, the Central Military Commission, the People's Bank of China, the China Investment Corporation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's more wow. like that. So, you know, they're probably all questions that could be answered to some degree. It, you know, uh, explain the party committee and the role of the party committee in Huawei. Which yeah, Jeremy I'm, wanted to, to get that question in earlier uh, about a party. Yeah, I think that's a good question. I mean, I, you know, that first question sounds to me like no Chinese company could ever possibly answer that. But, sure. Or, or I mean, no foreign company operating in China. That, yeah, yes, that's indeed, a, a very indeed. true. No please, company, yeah. Please provide details for every contract for goods or services provided in the United States in which Huawei Technologies, Huawei Technologies or one of its subsidiaries, whether wholly or partially owned, including joint ventures, is a party. You know, it's a Dude, lot of proprietary it, information, and that's the top of a document that is uh, several pages long. And it's eleven. <laughs> it's a it's a lot of detail they're asking for. So look, large companies are used to dealing with regulatory inquiries. They are used to dealing with regulatory inquiries and filling out long, detailed disclosure forms providing information. That's what they have legal teams for. So it's not that the document couldn't be addressed, but I do think it gives you a window into how they as an organization are perceived by the U.S. government, what the anxieties are, and where you know the barriers that will be erected in front of them. I mean, to put it clearly, I mean, America is not the only country with which uh, Huawei's had problems. I think one could say that it's kind of a bellwether for uh, – state-to-state -state relations, if you look at you know, uh, where China has had uh, political or, or, or diplomatic difficulties, so too has Huawei. So India is an, another very, very good example in recent years, of course, Canada. And of course, they're not present in any meaningful way in Japan. It's kind of a barometer, huh? Well, it, I mean, there's, there are several countries that have, that have pushed back. What we've seen consistently, though, is that if you follow the allegations that have been made by each government to justify the fact that they're closed out, you wind up following them back to nothing more than innuendo and smoke. There is, there is nobody has yet produced a fire. Nobody has yet demonstrated that Huawei or, frankly, any other telecommunications company from China or anywhere else has, has taken any steps that would compromise the security, either commercial or national, of any customer. And they've said, I mean, they've said this repeatedly, it would be corporate suicide. And the CNET article makes that point as well. Yes, they, they, they do. Right. And, and, you know, let's take it one step further. Um, the Jamestown Foundation is by no means any friend of, of China. Yet um, a young researcher from an American defense contractor, his name is Matthew Luce, um, it, back in February of this year, published an interesting article in the Jamestown Federation's, uh, Foundation's China Brief. And he went through it and he said, really, Huawei, ZTE, all these other civilian firms, if they do any business at all with the military, it's completely accidental and coincidental. The real telecommunications threat is within the military-industrial complex that the PLA controls directly. And, and he, he names names. He gives company names. It's, it's a fascinating read. And it suggests that you know, all these, these allegations and concerns about doing business here 
really are as yet unfounded. The CSIS, uh, the Center for Strategic and International Security, again, another, by no means right. a friend of China, has also come out and said that, that Australia's concerns, for example, are largely unfounded. The response to each one of these, and the response that I think, frankly, the, the economist gives most clearly is, at some point, you're going to have to verify every piece of telecommunications equipment that goes into every network, because regardless of source. Because it's well, it's, it's all well. Most of it's made in China. I mean, yeah, I think most the, of it is engineered here, even if it's designed by European or American companies. Yeah, the Economist actually, I thought was, um, you know, one of their of their reasons. Of course, is is very typically Economist. It just is is their their basic free free trade line. It says competition is good for people, and it notes that Huawei has played an undeniable role in 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 bringing telecoms revolution to Africa. And then secondly, I mean, as as we were saying, the fact that practically everyone, everyone, everyone makes telecommunications equipment in China already, anyway. So I mean, if you're going to get paranoid about Huawei, why not be equally paranoid about, about your iPhone, Alcatel, yeah, Ericsson, Lucent, et cetera? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. So well, follow the money. There's there's a couple of things that are operating here. One is when you cut through a lot of the political bluster from an American perspective. I think ultimately you find protectionism and. Uh, you know, large American players that don't want a company that competes very effectively on cost, which Huawei has done, uh, gaining any more of a foothold in the United States than, than you know, than is possible. Right. Uh, the second thing is Huawei is victimized to a degree by the fixation on the idea of cyber war and China is an emerging rival to the U.S. Uh, it's that's another follow the money situation. The cyber war industrial a complex. Huge amount of money yeah. is going to come out of cr- making cyber war an issue in terms of information security and device security and strategic policy and our networks and our control systems. Uh, it's going to be a lot of money. And it's very useful to have rivals uh, and it's very useful to have proximate threats to drive those kinds of agendas. And Huawei fits very nicely into that picture, regardless of anything else. That's right. Uh, let's. I mean, we've we've got a couple of PR experts here, uh, so we should take the opportunity to ask: How's their charm offensive going? I mean, what are they doing right? What are they doing wrong? What would you advise them to do? Uh, I mean, they're, they're the obvious things. Let some more sunshine in. I mean, just <laughs> run out of the volcano. Yeah, <laughs> top of my list. I, I would I would say that if you can't get run out of the volcano, everybody else in the company certainly needs to be out of the volcano. And I think. Um, having been down to their analyst conferences and, and that sort of a thing, it's it's pretty clear that they're moving in that direction. But, you know, what they're doing is they're putting out this sacrificial vice president, right? And they're saying, okay, you go out first and see what happens, right? And this and he comes back and he's all smiles and they get some good reports. And then another couple of vice presidents go, oh, okay, we'll try that. Um, they need to speed up that process. They need to make sure that more of their vice presidents, more of their senior executives are coming out. And they just got to be persistent. They got to stick to what they're doing. Because um, the entrenched interest that they're fighting in each of these global capitals has been at this a long time, and they've got lots and lots of friends. But David, you say if they can't get run out of the volcano, but don't you think they have to? I mean, to me, it's that's the only thing they can do. And I mean, even personally, I don't trust them until Ren comes out of the volcano. What the have you got to hide? You know, come and talk to us. People are have suspicions for. Uh, reasons that are not hard to understand. This country is kooky and crazy and paranoid when it comes to the internet. It's paranoid. You know, I will not put up with any 
one saying that the internet or the telecommunications industry in China is normal. It's not normal. It's paranoid. It's weird. It's bizarre. So that's where they're coming from. And if they don't address that problem, nobody will ever trust them. And I, 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 I agree. It starts with number one. Who's the boss? He's got to come out. He has got to be accessible. He's the founder. He's symbolic of the company. He's always going to represent it. And it is him, uh, or he, I should say, is often placed at the center of the controversy, particularly by voices that are advocating against the company. And the best way to address that is for him to come out and do it himself. So Other, the rest of this has had no effect then? I mean, hiring guys like Matt Bross, you know, former CEO. It doesn't CTO hurt, but BT. I don't... Uh, the question to ask yourself is... He's the paid but, monkey. I mean, that's it, like my, the, the cynic in me is, oh, you've got a couple <laughs> of paid monkeys. You've got a couple of Lawai working for you. But, nice. But they, you know, bring out the guy. So the question is, <laughs> they've been doing it for a while. How's it working for you? You know, it, they've been... They've been a, it's good. It doesn't hurt, paid monkey or not. We've all been there. Uh, that, no, no, no offense <laughs> to anyone who may, not may not or may not be a paid <laughs> monkey. But, you know, <laughs> I built my entire career. <laughs> anyway. But it, if, the, if the goal is to break down the barriers in the U.S., it's just not working yet. Now, it's possible that for the foreseeable future, this may not be an attainable goal. Okay, well, let's let that be the last word. I think we, we all agree. Bring <laughs> paid monkeys, the Simeon podcasting. <laughs> D- disclosure, this, this paid monkey day job is for a company that in some spheres, but not in the network equipment sphere, does compete with Huawei. Okay. And full And you are I mean, a paid monkey. I, I, I actually <laughs> I, I, I have I have probably um, more than your average person's empathy with them because look, all Chinese companies get tarred with the brush of brand China, let's face it. I mean and mine is certainly no exception. I mean Baidu certainly uh, in, in all of its its well, still very fledgling endeavors internationally. We we we, we face this. We face this. Um, let's move on to the section of our podcast where we all make recommendations. Will, why don't you start with our recommendations this week? Sure. I have a, a two-part thematic recommendation. Uh, one is applicable to all listeners. I'll, I'll recommend people to uh, a New York Times story today uh, uh, called Victims, Sons, in Tough Fight for Redress After China Rail Crash. It talks about uh, two Chinese-American men uh, who, with their parents who were Chinese immigrants to the U.S., were in the great Wenzhou train crash of July of last year. Uh, parents were killed, and the uh, the two sons have been waging a war against for compensation against uh, the railway ministry, which sounds like a Quixotic battle if ever there was one. Uh, it's interesting. It's kind of a dark story, um, but it's did you really just say Quixotic? I did. You like that? Uh, yeah, Dave Quixotic. Cut it, out. Quixotic. it is Quixotic. Um, <laughs> let me finish. <laughs> let me finish, please. I like that. Thank you. Um, so it's an interesting story. It's quite dark. But we recently went through the first anniversary of the train crash, and it's it's interesting to revisit it and revisit some of the personal stories. Um, part two of that recommendation is uh, out near uh, Tao Changdi and, and uh, Zhou Xianchao, that area, there's uh, the, the, the rail museum, which uh, is just great. Think what you want about the railway ministry, but, man, locomotives are cool. So if you live in Beijing, if you've got kids, railway museum, you cannot go wrong. Lots of fun. I hope David Fungi is not listening to this podcast. <laughs> Steam engines, man. Uh, oh, very cool, very cool. Railway museum. I should take my kid there, yeah. My boy, my girl isn't interested. Take the boy. Yeah. David, what you got for us this week? A book for everyone. Um, currently about a third of the way through, um, Stuart D. Goldman's really excellent Namun Han 1939, uh, The Red Army's Victory That Shaped World War II. Oh, wow. it, it's fascinating because this is when uh, the Russians 
and the Japanese squared off over Inner Mongolia and uh, the, the basically the northeast of China. It was the kind of rogue Kwangtung army of, of the Japanese. Yeah, um, the Guangdong um, army, actually. The, the Guangdong army, all yeah. Right, right. Um, against, uh, of, of all people, uh, Georgi Zhukov, who, who later became the great marshal of the Soviet yeah, Union. Marshal Zhukov, yeah. Marshal Zhukov, and he, he led uh, the Allied forces. Uh, or sorry, the Russian forces against uh, against Germany. But back then, he was an outcast, and he had just missed losing his head in, in the purges, so they sent him out to Siberia. And he commanded this 13-division force um, that, that gave the Japanese a round spanking and thus shaped the nature of the Far East in World War II. And it also talks a great deal about how Stalin was really using um, the Chinese as bullet sponges um, versus the, the Japanese so that they wouldn't attack uh, Siberia because they wanted to keep their forces focused on the Germans. Does it have the word Quixotic in it, though? It, it, you know what? I've, I'll check the index. I'm not Quixotic. sure it does. Quixotic. Jeremy, have you even heard of this battle? Uh, do you even heard? I, I had no oh, idea. Are you trying to this, make this me look bad? In no, front no, of no. I'm going to admit to my own ignorance. <laughs> there, there were no yes, British yes, troops involved, or, or no, no Commonwealth troops involved. So. I was no. I, I'm, I was completely ignorant about about that. that me too. Um, that that sounds absolutely fascinating. Yeah, yeah. and I'm going to actually read that. And it's one of those rare recommendations it's we make a, on here that I'll follow through on. It's a great read. Jeremy, what do you have for us this week? Uh, I got two things. One thing that uh, is just a mini micro recommendation because I haven't read it yet, but we did a Q&A with Richard Berger, the blogger behind Peking Duck, who's written a book about sex in China. Uh, so I'd like to recommend either the Q&A we did with Richard but, uh, and then, you know, if you like the Q&A, then buy his book. Um, and the second thing I'd like to recommend is something that if you live in China and are something of a masochist and neurotic like me, you might enjoy it. It's ooh, an ooh, app. Ooh. Um, called uh, it's a Chinese app called Zhongguo Qiusheng Shouzi, and basically you can open it every day, and it'll provide you with uh, the latest food safety scandals. Uh, so you can find out, you know, oh, where joy. the bad digoyo is, and you know, around the country, and enjoy. Well, that's that. just what I need. You know, I have it's, one it's, month of that, and I'm just going to be a gibbering lunatic. <laughs> <laughs> it's really great. I mean, if you if you combine it with the Beijing Air. Uh, Twitter feed. You'll never leave the house. <laughs> <laughs> or you'll, eat again. You'll find yourself writing one of those, why I left China. <laughs> <laughs> you got to break on through to the other side. Right. You know, that's all. <laughs> okay, I'm going to round this off with two very kind of um, uh, obscure and academic recommendations. But this is really ahead of our, uh, or in addition to our, our um, reading of Pankai Mishra's new book. Poindexter. Uh, I, I know. I mean, so oh, as, as, as I said earlier in the podcast, we're going to have Pankai Mishra uh, author of the new book from the ruins of empire uh, coming on to the podcast to talk to us and ahead of that i mean he, he talks about a couple of of, of important figures uh, al afghani uh, he talks about uh, liang Qichao and uh, rabindranath tagore uh, as different asian responses to imperialism i uh am a huge fan of a book by one of my favorite china scholars ever joseph levinson the, the book Liang Qichao and the Mind of Modern China, which you can still order from Amazon. It's it's not on Kindle yet, and I don't think it will be. But uh, oh, go 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 on there and say I want to read this book on Kindle. I don't know if there, if anyone listens, but please do that. The second is um, Asian Ideas of East and West: Tagore and His Critics in Japan, China, and India by Stephen Hay. Very very good book um, that looks at the sort of May 4th generation's response to Tagore and his ideas of a spiritual Eastern civilization. These people were hyper-rationalists. They were, you know, sort of really enamored with logical positivism, and, and they, they were 
uh, they were they really kind of mostly repudiated Tagore in, in in a way that I think in many ways marked the the the, the difference between uh, how China's and India's responses to the West were, were shaped. Anyway, thanks, David. Thank you, Kaiser. Thank you, Will. Thanks, Kaiser. And thank you, Jeremy, of course. Thanks, Kaiser. And uh, we will see you guys all next week on the Seneca Podcast, so take care. Thank you.